pasty-faced obese filmmaker and obese person Michael Moore has issued a manifesto making demands on the American people, who of course care very, very much about Michael Moore's demands and can't wait to hear them just as soon as they finish doing everything else and then dying of old age. Moore, who became a bazillionaire making movies touting communism, says he is first of all very upset with the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling overturning Roe v. Wade so that states can make state laws about state issues that the federal government is not legally empowered to make laws about, which is obviously very bad if you're Michael Moore or a slobbering idiot or both. Moore's manifesto, scrawled in tomato sauce on the underside of a box formerly containing an everything pizza with cheese-filled crust plus a free side order of cinnamon buns, declared that Moore no longer wanted to receive the, quote, privileges of full American citizenship since women had been conscripted into a life of forced birth should they fall pregnant, unquote. When it was explained to Moore that women don't actually fall pregnant, but become pregnant by conjoining their sexual organs with those of men, Moore could not understand the explanation because he hasn't been able to look down and see his sexual organs for years, not to mention his feet. When it was further explained that among the privileges of full citizenship that Moore was renouncing were the right to issue manifestos and the right to use capitalism to make gajillions of dollars touting communism, Moore said he would not renounce those particular privileges, but would renounce other American citizenship rights like flying business class if there was still a seat available in first. Moore went on to say, quote, and all of these are real quotes, by the way, if you invite me to dinner, this is all I'm going to talk about. And I won't stop until Roe is reinstated and 51% of Congress is female, unquote. On hearing this, families throughout the nation broke into joyous song because of the money they would now save by not inviting Michael Moore to dinner, which they had not been planning to do anyway. Moore's manifesto, written in chocolate icing on the inside of a now empty cake box from a store named Supersized Cakes for Make-Believe Communists, went on to demand, quote, an end to the mass incarceration of black Americans, unquote. This demand was instantly met by the fact that there has been no mass incarceration of black Americans, unless you mean the incarceration of those individual Americans of whatever color who have committed what are sometimes known as crimes, for which people are generally incarcerated, unless they happen to be O.J. Simpson, whom Michael Moore once declared was innocent in a book called Downsize This, written in mayonnaise on the side of a jumbo bag of potato chips from a company called Jumbo Potato Chips with Mayonnaise for Make-Believe Communists. Moore's Manifesto, written in cream filling on a pink box that once held two, <laughs> two dozen donuts from a company called Lotso Donuts for people who have their drivers park their limousines out of sight so they can attend Occupy rallies on foot like the zillionaire hypocrites they are, went on to say, quote, I refuse to live in a country threatened by white supremacy, and I'm not leaving, so we've got a problem, unquote. Moore did not specify what this problem was, or whose problem it was, or indeed which country was threatened by white supremacy. But in a poll of 15,000 pounds worth of Americans, 92% said they couldn't care less, and the other 8% were Michael Moore. In sum, the gargantuan filmmaker has declared he will no longer receive the privileges of American citizenship except for all of them. He will make boring speeches at dinner parties he's never going to be invited to. And he demands an end to things that aren't happening anywhere but in his imagination. Plus, he won't live here but isn't leaving. So basically, he's exactly like every other loudmouth leftist celebrity, except there's three times as much of him. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. 
life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, tipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray, oh, hooray, hurrah. All right. And that's what I have to say about Michael Moore. Uh, the vast right wing conspiracy known as Clavenon continues. Leftists are losing their war against reality and they're blaming Joe Biden for it. And we'll talk about that and how does it restore beauty to our culture and how to destroy big tech, drive them before us and hear the lamentations of their women. This will be a good time for you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It's extremely helpful to us. It really is. Also, please subscribe to my personal Andrew Claven YouTube channel. You will get exclusive content there. This week, I'm talking about the terminal list there, and you will get that if you ring that little bell. Uh, the guy from the terminal list will come over and blow your brains out. Uh, also, if you leave a comment and the comment is absolutely morally reprehensible, we will include it on the show as being fitting right in with the rest of the content. This one is from Tim Fenn Television. It says the Dobbs court decision was a win-win-win. Babies get saved. We get to see topless protesters. And the singer for Green Day is leaving the country. That's absolutely true. All right, next week is my vacation. I hope you have a vacation coming up. But summer is always busy and you're going to be away sometime. But you can rest easy with the protection of Ring Alarm. And I know you're thinking, what? Ring, ring, they, they make those great video doorbells that help me talk to people when they come to my door, no matter where I are, and I am on an app on my phone. Now, you're probably not thinking that because you've heard this ad before, but it is true. Nonetheless, that Ring makes an alarm. Ring Alarm is an award-winning home security system with available professional monitoring when you subscribe. And best of all, you can easily install it yourself. Ring didn't stop there. They've changed the home security game with Ring Alarm Pro. That's why you want to team up with Ring when it comes to protecting your home. Go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. Ring Alarm Pro is a next-level security system. CNET calls Ring Alarm Pro a giant leap for home security. Ring combined a home security system and a Wi-Fi router. So this thing helps protect your home and secure your network. With a Ring Protect Pro subscription, it's an amazing deal. You can get professional monitoring for the ultimate peace of mind. You may not have known, but it's true. Ring has an award-winning alarm. This busy summer season to protect your home, go pro with Ring Alarm Pro. To learn more, go to ring.com forward slash Claven. That's ring.com forward slash Claven. You want to know how to spell Claven. If anyone comes to your door, just ask him how to spell Claven. If he knows, set off the alarm. Uh, before I get into the meat of the show, I have to pause. I'm going on vacation next week. So this is now a clavenless uh, fortnight you are being faced with. Uh, that, that's as long, I think, as anyone has ever survived clavenlessly uh, in history. Uh, so your chances are small. The way to get through it, however, is to go on Amazon and pre-order the sequel to When Christmas Comes, which is now av available for pre-order. It's called A Strange Habit of Mind. And please, if you're going to buy it, pre-order it now. Uh, I know it's early. It doesn't come out until October, so it's a long wait. But here's the thing, okay? This is the second in, in what we hope will be a series. If it gets on a bestseller list or if it just sells enough, uh, it will be a series. If not, uh, we'll, we'll have no way of putting the series out there. So it matters a lot that you order early and let people see, the publisher see, that they're going to need a lot of copies. Last time, with when Christmas comes, you guys were great. You showed up. Everyone seems to have really loved the book. 
you will love this book more. This was when Cameron Winter, who returns from When Christmas Comes, uh, faces off with a social media billionaire. Uh, you'll like the story. You will. I promise. It's it's really a good book. So just pre-order now. It's called A Strange Habit of Mind. While you're at it, if you haven't read When Christmas Comes, get the first one. Uh, it would be extremely helpful if you do it early, if you can. Uh, so thank you for that. So there's a lot of big news today that we're absolutely not going to be talking about. Uh, you know, Shinzo Abe, I'm sure you've heard, uh, the Jap- former Japanese uh, prime minister, was shot dead, uh, and NPR and NBC uh, be clowned and besmirched themselves by making it sound like he deserved it. It was unbelievable because he was kind of a conservative. Uh, the prime minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, stepped down. Uh, we may talk about that uh, the next time. And uh, James Kahn, the former interim head of the Corleone family, uh, has died at 82. Great, tough guy actor. Loved, loved to watch James Kahn work. A lot of big stuff to talk about, and maybe we will get to some of it, but I'm going to talk about something that is much, much smaller because it says something about our culture, which is, I think, really important because, as we know, politics is downstream from culture, and this is the stuff that is coming. It's the tomorrow's news today, which is what you get on the show. Jordan Peterson... Uh, whom we love and who is now part of the Daily Wire Plus, had his Twitter feed shut down uh, because he tweeted, and this was, is a quote, remember when pride was a sin and Ellen Page just had her breasts removed by a criminal physician. You remember Ellen Page uh, is the actress who is now uh, had her breasts removed by a criminal physician and now calls herself Elliot Page. And this was deemed hateful uh, by Twitter. Uh, in, in Twitterese, hateful means true. It's hateful, that's what the word means. In Twitterese, uh, it's kind of like misinformation, which is lefties uh, for information we somehow missed censoring because it's hateful, i.e. true. So Jordan said, uh, he, you know, in order to get reinstated at Twitter, you have to take down the tweet. Jordan said he would never do that. He would rather die, which is why we love him. Uh, and he directed folks to find him over at Dave Rubin's local site, where you should go. That's a, It's a wonderful site. And Dave Rubin tweeted, <laughs> Dave Rubin tweeted, wow, the insanity continues at twi- Twitter. Jordan Peterson was shut down for his tweet about Ellen Page, and that was also deemed uh, true or hateful. Uh, You know, the words mean the same thing. Uh, And Dave Rubin was then suspended. Uh, Elon Musk responded by uh, sending a tweet by Paul Revere saying the British are coming and labeling it misinformation. Uh, Musk said Twitter was going way too far in squashing dissenting opinions. But that is not what Twitter is doing. They are not squashing dissenting opinions. They are squashing the simple truth. If you say Rachel Levine is a dude, which he is, he is a Monty Python routine of a dude, uh, they censor you. If you say Ellen Page had her breast cut off, uh, by a criminal physician, they censor you. If you say Ellen Page, they censor you because that's implying she's still a woman, which she is. And she's still a woman. Uh, then she is a woman who's had her healthy breast cut off, which is really a criminal act. Uh, So everything that Jordan Peterson (laughs) said made perfect sense. Now, I I gave a speech once about making sense. It was actually on the subject of abortion. abortion. Uh, It's called The Art of Making Sense. And, And the point was that reality tends to make sense. If you go north, uh, you get to Canada every single, not one time, but every single time. Every time you go north from here, you get to Canada. Every time you go south, you get to Mexico or the sea. It's not sometimes, it is all the time. And when the world doesn't make sense, scientists go to work finding out what they don't understand, because once they understand it, then it will make sense. Unless they're Anthony Fauci, and then they just lie, right? But most scientists go to work trying to find out what they don't understand, because when they understand it, then the world will make sense. Because of this, our morality should make sense. That's how we know that our morality is in keeping 
with reality, right? Morality is, is good morality. If it makes sense, and then it's in keeping with uh, reality. If you think it would be wrong to kill someone, if you think it would be wrong for someone to kill you so that they might have a better life, you know, maybe they want your money, maybe they want your job, so they think, well, I'll kill you and then I'll, I'll have a better life, then it would be wrong to kill, say, an unborn child, a person who is unborn, because that would improve your life. That would give you a better life, even if you really don't want that child. Making sense means the things that you believe have to stand the test of reason. How do you find out? Well, reason is expressed by words with reliable meanings, right? That's how you know something is reasonable if the words hang together, the logic of the words hang together. If I say me, if I say someone is going to kill me, then me has a definition. We all understand what that means. And if I say if it's wrong to kill you, then it's wrong to kill me. We have to understand those words. You can't add two and two together if you don't know what the word two means, right? So your words have to have reliable meanings if you want to debate, if you want to reason together, if someone wants to tell you that you're wrong, uh, if you don't depend on sense expressed in words and you don't debate it and you don't try to make sense, then we can't communicate at all or we can't agree on what's right and wrong at all. We can't do anything but kill one another, but hurt one another in order to get you to do what I want you to do instead of what makes sense and what is right. And that's what's so wicked about wokeness is wokeness tells you that words don't mean what they mean. That is why it was so easy for our friend Matt Walsh to go out and just say, what is a woman? And their whole transgender philosophy fell apart because they can't define the word because if they define the word, they have to make sense within the meaning of words. Now, the left, the woke, they know this. They know that it all depends on words. Here's Ibram Kendi. Remember, he's the anti-racist racist guy. He believes that being racist against whites is, is anti-racist. He's got this crazy philosophy that makes no sense. Now, listen to what Ibram Kendi says when he's asked, how do you argue with people who say this country isn't racist? This is cut eight. Typically, when people make these claims, they actually do not have a working definition of the very thing they claim doesn't exist. Um, and, and so that's what makes it hard for you to actually come in and say, no, actually, there's widespread structural racism. Uh, and and they, they don't have a working definition or their perspective on what structural racism is may be very different from you. So I, I would encourage you, if it's the person is close to you, you know, to really engage them on defining terms uh, and, and really work with them to define terms in a way that, that, that can give them the sort of lens to, to see this society. Because otherwise you're gonna have, you're gonna be speaking a different language, um, you know, trying to have a constructive conversation. So good, you wanna get a definition of racism, let's find out what Ibram Kendi's definition of racism is, this is cut nine. How do you define racism? Sure, so racism, I would define it um, as a collection uh, of racist policies that lead to racial inequity that are substantiated by racist ideas. <laughs> so, in other words, so you can't, you can't, it's called a circular definition. You can't have a definition that uses the word you're defining because that's essentially saying racism is racism. So when he defines it, he's got no definition of the word because once you define the word, everything that he says is racist because he's anti-white and that is in fact racist. To make words stop making sense, it's, it's a pure power move. It's saying that there's no way to argue with this. So why would you want to not make sense? Why would you want your words to be undefinable so no one can know whether you're making sense? Because making sense means that your morality can be tested. When your morality can be tested, you can't always get what you want. You can't get what you want 
morally, right? You can't eliminate womanhood, which might be getting in your way. Woman has, has special demands and powers and responsibilities. You can't get rid of the consequences of sex or the restrictions of constitutional governance. If you want something, if you want something and morality is getting in your way, you've got to stop making sense. And there's something else about uh, talking nonsense is that it has a special power. Why does it have a power? If I say to you, I am not sitting in this chair, what are you going to say? You say, well, well yes, you you are. And you say, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, but that, that, that's you saying, I know, it's, I'm, I'm not. You have no argument. Once people say that, oh, a woman is anything I say it is, how can you tell them whether they're a woman or not? How can you argue that Ellen Page, of course, is not a woman. Every cell in her body, of course, is not a man. Every cell in her body is a woman's cell, is a female cell. You can say that she wants to live as a man, which is none of your business. You can say she wants to be called a man, which you might do if you just want to be polite, but you might not, and you should not be censored for it. There's always a temptation not to make sense in order to get what you want and say that it's moral, right? So that the control of language uh, is, is a control over everything. And, to, and nonsense has a power because once you, you're talking nonsense, then your words don't mean anything and no one can argue with you. There is simply one catch in this system. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. It's the emperor's clothes. Everybody knows that Ellen Page is not a man. They can tell themselves they don't know. They can lie. They can tell themselves it's virtuous to lie. They can tell themselves that you're a bad person for not lying. But every single person knows. And everybody knows that Ibram Kendi is playing a con. Everybody knows that anti-racism, as he puts it, is just racism. Everybody knows it. So the minute it's exposed, the minute it is out there, the minute the truth is out there, the minute anybody like Jordan says, you know, Ellen Page is a woman who's had her breast cut off, you have to silence them. You have to silence them. Because once, because everybody knows. It's true. Everybody, once you say it, the emperor has no clothes. So talking nonsense is very powerful unless somebody has the courage, like Jordan, like David, like a lot of people, unless somebody has the courage to say that it's nonsense, right? And so shutting people down, shutting people up, forcing people, firing people, uh, constraining people, constricting people, threatening people, imprisoning people for speech is what you do when you are talking nonsense. It's not because they're spreading misinformation. It's because you are lying and talking nonsense and sapping the meaning out of words. If you ever wondered why Jesus said the truth will set you free, that's why. And you should see what Twitter did to Jesus. So, you know, I used to fly small planes and I had a serious problem getting nauseous in the planes because they're small and they bounce around a lot. And I used to wear these bands on my wrist and they are great. They really work. You've got to check them out. Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. I used it for motion sickness. It really does work. Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea and it blocks the signal to your brain that your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you're sick. 
I didn't know this. I don't need to know it. I just know it works. It's like the name says. It's legitimately a band you wear on your wrist to give you relief from nausea, and you can change the intensity depending on how you're feeling. If you're really finally taking that summer trip that's been on your calendar since 2020, here's good news. You can join the over 100,000 Relief Band users with an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to reliefband.com and use promo code CLAVEN. You'll get 20% off plus free shipping and no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. It's better to have a relief band and not need it than to need it and not have it. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use our promo code CLAVEN for 20% off plus free shipping. You're saying, yeah, relief band, that's easy, but how do you spell CLAVEN? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in CLAVEN. There are no E's in So when people stop making sense, obviously stop making sense, they, they've lost the capacity uh, to speak morally. You can't speak morally unless you can speak, unless you make sense, and you can't make sense unless your words mean things that we all agree that they were, that they mean. So the question then becomes, what do they want? What do you want? Why did you stop making sense? And it may not be a bad thing. It may be something harmless. It may be something that you think is, uh, could be a good thing, but they, but there's something that they want that they feel that they can't get Morally, there was an op-ed on Knucklehead Row, uh, the op-ed page of the New York Times, a former newspaper. Here's just a, a little bit of it. I have sex just because I like it. Sex is fun. For the puritanical tyrants seeking to control our bodies, that's a problem. Many in that movement are animated by an insatiable desire to punish people who have sex on our own terms and enjoy it. Now, that, of course, was written by Harvey Weinstein. He was just trying to have fun, and, and people were just pure— Oh, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. It was not Harvey Weinstein. It was actually uh, Mara Gay, uh, who uh, is a board member on the board, the editorial board of the New York Times. And here I will read the, what she really said. One day I hope to become a mother, but for now I have sex just because I like it. Sex is fun. For the puritanical tyrants seeking to control our bodies, that's a problem. This radical minority, including the right-wing faction of the Supreme Court, probably won't stop at banning abortion. If we take Justice Clarence Thomas at his word, the right to contraception could be the next to fall. Why? Because many in this movement are animated by an insatiable desire to punish women who have sex on our own terms and enjoy it. So none of that makes sense. Of course, uh, the Supreme Court did not ban abortion. It simply returned the power to make it to elected representatives in the states. And, of course, nobody is bothering Marigay about having fun, having sex. Nobody cares whether she has, unless, except maybe the guy uh, who's with her cares, but maybe. Uh, but no, none of the rest of us care whether she's having fun or not. We are worried about something entirely different, that sex has consequences. One of those consequences is the creation of other human beings. Those other human beings have a right to be alive, and it is wrong to stop them from being alive. So she's not, maybe she wants to have sex, I'm fine with that. I'm sure you you could care less. It's not it's not what she wants. It's the consequences of what she wants that are a problem, and that's why she stops talking, the, telling the truth, and that's why she stops making sense because she's trying to get around that moral problem. If you hold yourself to making sense, you're going to feel guilty. So the thing is, this is the thing. It's not just what people want. It's what they don't want. What they don't want is guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are terrible, terrible feelings. People 
do incredible things to avoid shame. People live their whole lives, their whole lives, trying not to experience shame. I, I believe, you know, people talk about, oh, sex is the great motivating factor. Money is the great motivating factor. I think stopping from feeling shame is one of the greatest of human motivating factors. I think it's because we're fallen people. We know we're supposed to be better than we are. There's not a single person walking the earth, not a single person, including people who lie about it, who doesn't know he is not what he's supposed to be and could be better and doesn't feel some level of shame and guilt about it and avoiding that shame, avoiding that guilt is, is why they're, listen to the way people talk. Listen to how often they're telling you what a good person they are. Now, in Christianity, right, we, we start from the premise that we are sinful, this premise that we're shamed, and that we need to be forgiven. We have to ask God for forgiven, for forgiveness. In, in 12-step programs like Alcoholic, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, all those 12-step programs, they, they take this from Christianity. They say you first have to, six of the 12 steps or something like that are like make a searching and fearless moral inventory, admit to God, to your, ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs, say we're entirely ready to have God remove the defects of our character, humbly ask God to remove our shortcomings, make a list of all persons we had harmed. This is now like one, two, three, four, five. Make a list of all persons we have harmed and become willing to make amends to them all, make direct amends to such people, continue to take personal inventory. That is four to 10 of the 12 steps is getting rid of that shame. Alcoholics Anonymous know why people drink. They know why people overeat. They know why people dye their hair purple, why they get tattoos all over their body, why they dress up in leather with their butts hanging out and go in a pride parade. It is all to avoid looking in the mirror and facing that shame, which brings us to the Democrat Party and the Biden administration and Marxism in general. The entire history of the left from Stalin on is the failure of Marxism. It's the, you know, there was a point where you could accept Marxism and say, well, hey, this sounds like a good idea. Everything's gonna be fair. Everybody's gonna have the same amount of money. The, the you know, people will take what they need and give what they can and all this. All makes perfect sense until you try it and it fails. Thomas Sowell, <laughs> his greatest lines, he writes, the inefficiency of political control of an economy has been demonstrated more often in more places and under more varied conditions than almost anything outside the realm of pure science. Leftism, it's a gift from God because it's so wicked, leftism, that if it worked, we would just descend into wickedness because people want so desperately to feel good. They want so desperately to feel that they shouldn't be ashamed. They want so desperately to get rid of that sense of shame that is the uh, force and power of original sin in us that they just think, if I can just have a good, if I can support a good political economy, even while I'm living behind in, you know, outside of San Francisco in my gated million billion dollar house, like Nancy Pelosi, while the city goes down the drain, I can still feel good about myself because I believe in these wonderful things. But all of it fails. The great society, uh, you know, has, the, everything has failed. They the Great Society hasn't stopped inequalities of race. I think it made them worse. Uh, you know, the top-down running of the economy makes everything worse. They want no fossil fuels. That's made everything worse. So they had to create this world in which reality is not reality. And that is what everything is about. All this critical race theory, it's all about this. Critical race theory where Ibram Kendi says all racial inequalities are due to racism. They're not. They're due to bad policies. They're due to the great society. They're due to paying people uh, to stay home. They're due to, due to paying people to have children out of wedlock. Uh, they're due to telling black people that they are somehow exempt from the moral order because their ancestors were abused. 
abused. All of our ancestors were abused, all of them. And I'm willing to accept that most of our ancestors were abused in other countries and blacks have to take an extra step of grace to uh, understand that their, their abuse happened here and now they have to forgive it and let it go because nothing's gonna change it. The past isn't gonna go away. But still, still they simply can't admit they're wrong. The entire Biden administration, I mean, gas prices skyrocketing. Inflation is insane. And here's Joe Biden. Here's Joe Biden's, one of his many, many, many explanations is cut 20. We made incredible progress on the economy from where we were a year and a half ago. We got a long way to go because of inflation, because of the, I call it, the Putin tax increase. Putin because of gasoline and all that grain he's keeping from being able to get to the market. Now I'm fighting like hell to lower costs on things that you talk about around your kitchen table. My dad used to say, at the end of the day, it's just when you sit at that table, do you have enough money to pay for everything you need? Not a lot over. Do you have enough money to pay for everything you need? <laughs> Somebody ought to tell Biden's dad, no, we don't. I mean, it's gotten so expensive. And, you know, this thing about the Putin price, I mean, it's so despicable. It is so awful. I mean, Putin is a terrible guy. The invasion of Ukraine was an absolute uh, atrocity, absolutely wrong. Still, still, he's blaming this. You know, uh, what's his name? Alfred E. Newman, uh, the transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg, goes on with Neil Cavuto, the Fox economics guy. Listen, here's a perfect example. Listen to Pete Buttigieg sell this garbage about Putin. And Neil Cavuto used simple logic against him. I mean, the, the difference... You know, he's not, it's not gotcha journalism. It's not saying, oh, you know, you went out with some girl you weren't supposed to go. It's just simple logic. It's just simply making sense. And listen to the difference. The major oil producing country launched uh, a war of aggression and destabilized uh, so much of the world economy when they did. Uh, but half there are of the price, so many well, things well, well, that, wait, uh, wait a minute, the second, half that. of that increase started prior to the first Russian soldiers arriving near Ukraine. You can't blame it all on the Ukraine, right? What about the other half? Well, that no, was, what about the other half? No, that's that, a, that's that, a pretty that, important that, half. <laughs> Such a doofus. The guy's a mayor of a town, you know, is where he belonged, if he could do that well. So think about this for a minute. Let's, let's make sense for a minute. He says half of the increase came before... Half of the increase came before the invasion of Ukraine, and he, like an idiot, laughs when people can't get to work. They can't afford to get to work. Uh, Uber drivers are being destroyed. Drivers of all kinds are being destroyed. All that shipping that keeps the supply running just becoming incredibly expensive. And he says, well, 50% came before. And he said, well, the other 50% came after. But using common sense, just a little common sense, if the prices were going up when Putin invaded, not all of the price rise that happened after Putin invaded is up to Putin, right? It was going up already. So part of that is still uh, the Biden administration's fault. And, you know, everything they say about the Trump administration and everything they say about the economy before was because they shut down the economy. And I will, I'm happy to blame Trump for not standing up uh, to Fauci and not standing up to them, but I'm not sure anybody would have in a case like that where there is a disease coming uh, and nobody knows anything. You turn to the experts and the experts failed. Biden simply will not take responsibility. The left simply will not face the fact. They will not face the fact that what they do doesn't work. Luckily, luckily, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, sometimes I pick on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez because she's a moron. She's not a moron. She's an ignoramus. She's an ignorant person. But she has a plan. She has a plan for what we can do, uh, especially in the wake of the Supreme Court decisions that she didn't like. This is cut 13. I want to talk about personal acts of reclamation. 
because sometimes people will say, there's nothing I can do, I can't do, I feel so powerless. And there is no act too small um, that you can engage in. And even today, I have a personal errand. Um, I need to redo my nails. And I've decided that I'm going to use my new manicure as almost like a personal act of reclamation for me and my story. Me too. I'm, hashtag me too. I'm doing this. I'm going to get my nails done. And uh, I may have my toenails done as well. And uh, that, that will be my personal act of reclamation for all of us. It's for all mankind. I'm doing it for all mankind. Um, <laughs> the country the country's in the very best of, best of hands. So here is information that came out this week that really is telling. Red states are winning the post-pandemic economy. This is, I think this is from the Wall Street Journal, Josh Mitchell. Uh, workers and employers moved away from the coast to middle of the country in Florida, sparking swifter recoveries there. Since February 2020, the month before the pandemic began, the share of all U.S. jobs located in red states has grown by more than half a percentage point, according to an analysis of Labor Department's data by the Brookings Institution. Uh, it, it is unbelievable that how, how much the red states are recovering, how much faster the red states are recovering from the blue states, and also the fact that their numbers in terms of the disease, in terms of COVID, are no worse are no worse. So the, the results are in. The results have come in. This has been a terrible mistake. There's a, another piece in the column, uh, Alyssa Finley, who really is a new op-ed columnist there uh, who writes, does really good work. Uh, she writes, Biden and Fauci botched the COVID pandemic response. You know, Trump had this guy, Dr. Scott Atlas. I don't know if you remember him. He endorsed the elements of the Great Barrington Strategy, which was the one signed by all those epidemiologists that said, basically, um, we should keep the old people, uh, you know, protect old people, save the Claven. That was my policy, save the Claven, but let everybody else go to work, you know, make sure that the vaccines go to the old people first, go to the people at risk. And that was completely abandoned by Fauci. Uh, even after, this is even after the vaccines came out and the vaccines were very promising. Everybody was very hopeful, but then the vaccines wore off very quickly. They didn't protect people as much as they hoped they would. They stopped very quick. They went down the, their, uh, efficiency went down uh, first to, uh, I think, 84 percent. And ultimately, by July, uh, according to an Israeli test, they had gone down to 39 percent. And Fauci was still saying in August after that report came out that herd immunity would be easy to get uh, if people would just get vaccinated. He, he was not telling the truth, obviously. And yet they keep saying the, the Democrats just brought out this report saying, oh, if we had listened to Scott Atlas, you know, more people would have died. It's just not, not true. Scott Atlas was right. Trump was right. He unfortunately didn't stand up to Fauci and shut him down. And again, I can't really blame him for that. I'm not sure anybody would have done it. But here's my question. Where are the apologies? Instead of blaming Trump for the economy going bad because of the lockdowns, where are the apologies? More people, I, I, over 100,000 more people have died under Biden than under Trump. Where are the apologies? Where, you know, what would happen if somebody just came out and said, you know what, we got it wrong. It, was, it came out of nowhere. We weren't expecting the disease. We didn't know how to react. We overreacted. We were eager to save lives. You know, we got it wrong and we're sorry. What would happen? You know, people made fun of Trump for all the people he fired, but Joe Biden hasn't fired anybody. I mean, some people have left because they can't stand it anymore, but they haven't fired anybody. It, it, is, it is really 
amazing that nobody wants to take, nobody on the left wants to change their mind. And this was not always true. You know, Jimmy Carter, we make fun of him, but he changed his mind when he got it wrong. Uh, and he started to get things, make, get things right toward the end of his, um, to the end of his administration. But these guys, they never change their mind because they think that, because their philosophy is their virtue. Their philosophy is connected with their virtue, so it alleviates them from shame, so it doesn't matter what's happening to you as long as they feel righteous. So now what they're going to do is blame Joe Biden. And I can't defend the guy, but it's really not fair to blame Joe Biden for something the left desperately wants. If you're a parent, then you know kids are annoying. Amazing. It says amazing. I don't know why I said annoying. just came into my head. But they're not just amazing. They're also expensive. But with Fabric, protecting your family with term life insurance is surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help them manage their family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a buck a day. Everything is on your schedule with Fabric because it's all online. It takes less than 10 minutes to apply, and you could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then just personalize your quote to fit your family's need. With Fabric's online hub, it's easy to track your family finances all in one place, get affordable life insurance, set up your kid's college savings plan, and even establish a rainy day savings fund. Protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at Meet fabric.com slash Clavin. That's meetfabric.com slash Clavin to start protecting your family today. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash Clavin. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantis Life, not available in New York and Montana. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Why'd they spell meat but not Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. There are no E's in Clavin. I just make it look this easy. You know, we all must face reality doubt sooner or later. Ah. Uh -huh. Well, I wrestled with reality for 35 years, Doctor, and I'm happy to state I finally won out over it. That's <laughs> uh, Jimmy Stewart as, uh, what was his name, Elwood uh, Dobbs, uh, joining the Democrat Party. He then becomes a, joins the Democrat Party and believes in a tremendous uh, white rabbit and named Joe Biden. It's just by coincidence. I, not many people know that. Um, but <laughs> this is the new... The new idea that the Democrats have come up with is that everything is Joe Biden's fault. And the reason it's Joe Biden's fault is because he's not being angry enough. He's not going out there and shouting about abortion. He's not going out there and shouting about guns and telling people, you know, they've got to get rid of their guns and they've got to get abortions. Maybe they could even use their guns to kill their children. Who knows? You know, what, whatever, whatever the new Democrat policy is, <laughs> it actually wouldn't surprise me if that turned out to be it. The idea being that if only the president would get angry. Now, you got to remember, you have to remember that Biden was elected to get at Trump. The Democrat Party looked like they were going to nominate, you know, maybe um, uh, Bernie Sanders, maybe Elizabeth Warren. And Cooler Head said, these guys are too radical. So what we're going to do is we're going to get this guy. He's, you know, he's, he passed away. Uh, he's passed away. He's hiding in his basement. And actually, he's, he's dead. But, like, we're going to put him on top of the leftist policies, and everybody will vote for him uh, and because he's old, good old Joe Biden. And then we'll kind of stuff him with leftist policies like the mother in Psycho, and we'll have him rocking in the, you know, the White House, uh, passing all these leftist policies. But everyone will go for them because it'll be 
good old Joe Biden stuffed uh, with leftist policies. You know, but that didn't work because people voted for moderate Joe Biden. That's who they thought they were voting for. And the fact that he is the guy uh, putting forward these leftist policies doesn't matter. They thought this thing with they threatened and threatened. And I said this because you get tomorrow's news today on this show. I said a long time ago that I did not believe that uh, overturning Roe v. Wade was going to be a big voting boon for the Democrats. Now there's a new uh, survey, who's in front by Harvard uh, Harris survey, which shows that when you really start to parse the numbers, when you really start to see what people believe about Roe v. Wade, uh, 55% of voters, including 61% of women, say they oppose the reversal, but many people, as usual, don't understand what exactly Roe means. I wonder why that is. It couldn't be because everyone in the media has been lying to him about it. When specifically, I mean, remember, Roe v. Wade basically hardly allows any restrictions on abortion uh, and no restrictions on abortion before what viability, which is like 23 to 24 weeks, which according to my math is like six months. You're six months pregnant then. Then, am I right about it? Yes, I am. Uh, English major. But still, when when you ask people specific questions, 37% say there should only be abortion after rape or incest. 37% only after rape or incest, which is almost none of the abortions that are being performed. Another 12% say until six weeks of pre- pregnancy. 23% say up to 15 weeks. Add those figures together and it's nearly three quarters of voters, including 75% of women who want a policy that they would not have been able to get under row. And the other thing this survey showed is that people don't like it when you call the Supreme Court illegitimate. That's ridiculous and they know it. So it's not Joe Biden. And yet one of the ways that reality presents itself to politicians is called elections. Right? When, people, when the elections come down, suddenly reality starts to rise up and you find out, oh, then no, you can't shout it down. No, you can't just change the meaning of words and have reality change. No, you can't fool all the people all the time. So as the midterms get close, as reality gets close, they need somebody to blame instead of saying, oh, we were wrong. Our policies don't work. Let's change them a little bit. Some of those Republicans were right. Maybe even Trump was occasionally right. Instead of saying that, which is what a normal, decent, you know, human being would do, they're going to blame Joe Biden. And the way you know they're going to blame Joe Biden is because all their mouthpieces, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, those are just mouthpieces for the Democrat Party, are suddenly attacking Biden. So here's one from the New York Times. Uh, Biden promised to stay above the fray, but Democrats want a fighter with inflation soaring and Democrats still fuming about the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Mr. Biden's public schedule included no events or announcements on either topic. And in response to last Last week's blockbuster testimony about the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is a woman making up that hilarious story about Trump seizing the wheel of the I can't get it. I love that story. Uh, seizing the wheel of the car and strangling the Supreme Court, that is the Supreme Court, the Secret Service guy. Mr. Biden has said almost nothing, pledging deference to the Congressional Committee investigating the violent assault. At a moment of broad political tumult and economic distress, Mr. Biden has appeared far less engaged than many of his supporters had hoped. So a reporter asked Biden about this, and I love this. This is this is classic uh, Crazy Joe. Let's uh, cut one. Are you the best messenger to carry this forward when Democrats, many of them, many progressives, want you to do more? <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm the president of the United States of America. That makes me the best messenger. I'm the only president they got. <laughs> only better they got, so screw them, screw them. So David Axelrod, former Obama advisor, 
had this to say about where Biden is and why the Democrats are starting to say that he's he's the problem. Let's cut to. There is this sense that things are kind of out of control and he's not in command. And this uh, and this lends, uh, you know, lends to that. Uh, you know, inflation is no one president could control inflation, but it is a, a you know, it's a gale force wind right now. It's affecting politics very hard to come. You know, to, you, you heard him on gas prices today talks about the gas tax holiday, but he's not going to get the gas tax holiday. And there are a lot of Americans who are skeptical about whether that would uh, that would help. Uh, so, there, you know, this is a very, very freighted, uh, fraught environment for him right now. <laughs> one, of, one of the Americans, by the way, who uh, is not convinced that a cutting the gas tax uh, would help is Barack Obama. He said he stood up to people who wanted J- John McCain. He stood up to John McCain uh, when they wanted to cut that gas tax because he knew it was just political theater. They want to know why Biden won't uh, get rid of the uh, filibuster so they can pass a law saying that abortion is legal throughout the country. Well, first of all, Biden doesn't have the votes to get rid of the filibuster, right? He's got to have over 50 votes to get rid of the filibuster. Uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema will not join those votes. And Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, remember, are covering for a lot of people who also don't want to vote against the filibuster for the simple reason that if they vote against the filibuster, when the Republicans come in and take power, the Republicans won't have the filibuster either. The Democrats won't be able to use the filibuster, which is there to help so that the majority doesn't steamroll the minority. So, you know, every time you're a Democrat, going, oh, that rotten Joe Manchin, that rotten Kirsten Sinema. What they're really saying is, thank God they stood up and took the hit. So I don't have to, right? Because they all know uh, that, that, that changing the filibuster is nuts. When the last time they did that, the right got the Supreme Court because they got rid of the all the... Uh, the filibuster for all the judges except the Supreme Court. And Mitch McConnell said, well, you know, if you're going to do that, we're going to get rid of the one for the Supreme Court as well. It is, they, they do not want to say that it's the leftism. They don't want to say that people don't want this. They are not in the majority. You know, conservatives like me are not in the majority either. I mean, I always say to people, uh, you know, like my friend Sebastian Gorka is always saying, why do we have to have these rhinos? And I say, because the rhinos represent a certain amount of people. We conservatives are not in the majority either. This is a 50-50 country. I think it's still a little bit to the right, but it's not all the way to right, nowhere near as far to the right as I would like to see it be. Here is a, another Democrat consultant. He says there's a leadership vacuum right now, and Biden is not filling it. And I sympathize with the argument that there's very little they can do legislatively, but in moments of crisis, the president is called upon to be a leader. And when people are feeling scared and angry and outraged, they look to him for that, and they're not getting much. And here is uh, Ron Brownstein, who is the uh, CNN senior political analyst, talking about that as cut three. He is someone who was elected to the Senate in 1972. He is shaped by Washington. It was clubbier and more cooperative. His first instinct is always to uphold the old rules, whether that's the filibuster or not criticizing the Supreme Court uh, too harshly. Um, he eventually gets to where the party is, but he always seems to be behind. So he has to he has to catch up. He's not running fast enough to catch up with the left of his party. But the left of his party doesn't represent that many people. And the Washington Post, who ran another one of these columns, you know, sort of lighting up that we want to get rid of Joe Biden. He said, as some Democrats grow, uh, the Post said, as some Democrats grow impatient with Biden, alternative voices emerge. More Democrats are frustrated at Biden's caution uh, in what they consider a moment of crisis. And figures like Newsom and Pritzker are showcasing a sharper approach. Now, I love Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is running 
for re-election as governor of California. And his ad uh, t- taunting the people in Florida where things are going much better than they are in California and where their numbers on the disease are much uh, better or basically equal, th- uh, basically the same. He's got this new ad for governor that people are seeing as a prototype for his coming presidential run. Cut seven. It's Independence Day. So let's talk about what's going on in America. Freedom, it's under attack in your state. Your Republican leaders, they're banning books, making it harder to vote restricting speech in classrooms, even criminalizing women and doctors. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, where we still believe in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom to choose, freedom from hate, and the freedom to love. Don't let them take your freedom. Paid for by Newsom for California Governor 2022. I love it. Come to this flaming hellhole. Leave the paradise of Florida and come to this flaming hellhole of homelessness and crime and dysfunction. But at least you can get an abortion because you wouldn't want to bring a child into a society like California. That's his pitch. They think that that is the one. That's what we need. Joe Biden isn't doing it. But, you know, Gavin Newsom, if he runs for president, just the fact that he went out to that place, what was it called? The French Laundry with his friends. Just the pictures of him with no mask on while everybody has... That's one of the things that brought Boris Johnson down. If you're watching Boris Johnson's resignation and thinking, why did he resign? It was nothing big. It was stuff like that. It was stuff like having parties while the rest of uh, England, Britain, was shut away uh, and and appointing a guy who was a known sex uh, predator, uh, you know, not not an illegal sex predator, but a known in-house sex predator. It was little scandals like that. You know, Gavin Newsom, I don't think is going anywhere. The one thing I can say about the Democrat Party, the one thing I can say is they are a great guide on how not to live, <laughs> not to live. You know, if you if you watch the Democrat Party, watch what's happening to them, watch what's going to happen to them, I hope, in the coming uh, midterms election, midterm election and the coming presidential election. And you will learn, do not make war with reality, collaborate with reality, bring your own personal mark to reality. But remember, reality is in charge. Seek the truth, tell the truth, act as morally as it's in your power to act when you fail and you will fail repent and change. When you fail, don't keep doing the same thing over and over again. Use words to mean what they mean. Make sense. Try to understand, try to make your morality make sense. Do not be a Democrat. So I travel a lot and I'm in cars all the time. I'm in hotels all the time. And I have to tell you, the people who are hired there make all the difference. You know that, right? If you're hiring, you want to find real talent. To find talent, it's crucial to run a successful business. If you're hiring, you can find talent for roles that you need at ZipRecruiter. When you try it for free, it's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. I mean, you ever wonder why this place is such chaos? It's because we started without ZipRecruiter. But ZipRecruiter uses its powerful technology to find and match the right candidates up with your job. You can easily review these recommended candidates and invite your top choices to apply. Additionally, ZipRecruiter has a complete suite of tools that makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated hiring site based on G2 satisfaction ratings as of January 1st, 2022. Soak up all that summer has to offer and let ZipRecruiter do the work. Ready for the URL? It's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. That's where you can try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash Clavin. And how do you spell Clavin? <laughs> Don't you wish you knew? I'll tell you, it's K-L-A-V-A-N. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. So when I see something like Jordan Peterson being chased off Twitter, uh, I want to find the people who run social media 
uh, destroy them, chase them before me, and hear the lamentations of their women. To find out how to do that, we have contacted Kara Frederick. Her research focuses on big tech and emerging technology policy. She's a former Facebook intelligence analyst and senior intelligence analyst for a U.S. Navy Special Warfare Command, and now she's the director of tech policy at the Heritage Foundation. Kara, thank you for coming on. Of course, anytime. Uh, so, Kara, I gotta, I'm just up front. I hate these guys. I mean, I, when I watch what they are doing to, especially to conservatives, but to anybody who really just doesn't conform uh, to this woke philosophy, and every time I say that they should be uh, shut down or destroyed or ground into dust, I won't bother you with my, my fantasies of what I want to do to them. Uh, you know, somebody says, well, no, that's, that's unconstitutional. Uh, so what, what do you see when you look at these? Are, are, do you see, first of all, I should ask you, do you find uh, big tech and social media to be a problem? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I I went to work in the belly of the beast, right? I sort of believed in their whole value proposition, which was the democratization of information. And, you know, we're allowing uh, people to, to have a voice where previously the gatekeepers of information were a media like CNN, like MSNBC, people who didn't really, uh, they're not on the cons- of the conservative persuasion. But it looks to me, and especially in the past two years alone, I would say really starting with the Hunter Biden laptop story subjected by Twitter and Facebook, that was a crossing of the Rubicon. These tech companies, uh, I got out in 2017, but they've really revealed themselves to be the ideologues that they are. I think something it you know made a lot of people snap in 2016 when Donald Trump won, but when the media blamed Facebook for Donald Trump's victory, I think these tech companies just went, you know, the, the veil slipped down and they became who they really wanted to be uh, for the most part in uh, all along really and that is taking control of information access uh, taking control of information manipulation and just becoming frankly a net negative for society whereupon they had first promised to to actually be a boon to a healthy body politic we've seen the the exact opposite in that regard you know, it's interesting. There's a journalist, very uh, smart guy named Richard Minniter, uh, who says that the press went bad when Reagan won, that they reacted. They thought, oh, you never want that to happen again. And it's kind of the same thing with Trump winning uh, and social media. Every time I talk about getting this under control, because it seems to me that it is genuinely damaging to free speech rights. It's not a violation of the First Amendment because they're not the government, but it's still damaging to our culture of free speech. Every time I talk about this, uh, somebody, and the name David French comes to mind, tells me that, no, I'm, you know, I'm really endangering free speech by giving government the power to control social media. But government gave social media the power to censor people in the first place. Is there nothing that we can do about this? No, you're exactly right. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about government intervention. A lot of the ways that they've been able to accrue all these technical advantages, the network of that help people stay on these platforms when we know that they're frankly very, very biased, the government has enhanced their power. Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. I mean, even Bill Barr admitted that these companies grew and consolidated power under the nose of antitrust legislators in government. We just let it 
it happened. And the fact that the government works hand in glove with these companies to really infringe upon the free speech rights upon Americans, I think conservatives generally should be skeptical of all concentrations of power. But when private corporations work together with these the government actors to stifle speech, you have a massive problem. And yeah, can you consider them quasi-state actors? I think there's a good argument to be made that this is absolutely the case. So solutions are, <laughs> they're, they're going to have to be myriad. And frankly, I do believe that some of them can come from the government. This can look like more pressure, more oversight, more scrutiny over these companies. It can look like prohibiting government use of these companies to chill the speech of everyday Americans. You know, the David Frenches of the world, they talk about the First Amendment rights of these corporations. Yet, uh, you, like you said, we have a culture of free speech in America, in America. So what about the First Amendment rights of the users, of the citizens? You know, there's a balance that needs to be redressed there. And right now it's on the side of these big corporations and against we the people. That's not how it's supposed to work in America at all. So go back a minute to this thing about them colluding with the government. First of all, am I wrong that there's a Supreme Court decision that makes that illegal, that makes that actually a violation of the First Amendment? You're thinking about Norwood versus Harrison, um, and this is basically, it's something that my, our friends Vivek Ramaswamy talk about all the time. The government cannot make an end run around the Constitution and outsource to private actors what it can't do as a public institution, what it can't do as the government. But in many cases, we've seen this with Jen Psaki when she went to the White House podium last July and basically said, oh, we're working with Facebook to flag problematic posts uh, and accounts, and then 30 days later, a lot of these users and accounts, 12 of them in particular, were kicked off Facebook. The Surgeon General said as much. DHS Secretary Mayorka said the same thing. We're seeing the leaks from the DHS uh, now paused disinformation board saying they wanted to operationalize Twitter to effectively do their bidding when it comes to censorship. And then Joe Biden himself at a COVID press conference in January basically said private companies need to do more to censor. So the government is actively working both at the federal level and the state level, we have a, a lawsuit, uh, Rogan versus O'Hanley, which basically says Twitter uh, worked with the Office of the Secretary of State for California to whip and flag a conservative commentator in California off the map. So this is this is pervasive, and it's something that tech companies uh, have tried to, to hide for a little while, and the government is, is frankly admitting it. So mm -hmm. big problem. So before we get to bigger solutions and, and things that the government can actually do, a guy like Jordan Peterson gets not knocked off Twitter for saying that Ellen Page is still a girl, you know, I mean, which is just, I'm sorry, it's just the truth. But even if it, even if it were up for argument, uh, you know, which I suppose it could be, uh, why shouldn't he be allowed to make that argument? Does he have any recourse as a, just an individual? Right now, it's really hard because, yeah. like we've talked about, a, the, a lot of these decisions are going to the side of the First Amendment rights of these private corporations instead of the users. So I try to tell people from my time working in Silicon Valley, these terms of service, these community standards that you're agreeing to, they equal CYA measures. They're not there for you, right? They're like an HR department. It's not your friend. It's there to protect the corporation itself. So when you're signing on to this, you're basically saying, sure, I'll agree to whatever wanton application of these rules are. You know, tech companies, they pretended to uniformly apply these community standards, but we all know at this point they don't. And 
the the idea that you know oh okay you don't have to be on these private platforms or you can just build your own i mean that is entirely bankrupt and the parlor saga when amazon web services right. actually took away our cloud hosting infrastructure all right so how are we supposed to build our own if we can't even use any of the rails that these companies in a government enhanced way became a very powerful building all right so so my solution so far that, that i've come up with involve a lot of tar and feathers whips uh, occasionally crucifixions but you know i don't want to go too far uh what are some more more rational things that we can move for or you know be activists about uh that the government could do or that we can do no, you know, I think bring back tarring and feathering. I think that's really critical here. <laughs> that was a good, I thought that was a good idea. Yeah, that's right. I'm glad an expert agrees with me there. But yeah, but what else? What else can yeah, we do? The <laughs> you know, what what answers the the David Frank? I I hate to keep using David as a a, a um, an example, but what answers the people who say you can't stop these guys? They're private entities, so you can't uh, stop them from silencing everybody else. Uh, what what's okay. the answer to that? Yep. I think, first of all, you talk about how now they're working actively with the government. So that shuts the libertarians up in a lot of ways because right. they don't have any recourse to argue against that. Secondly, we need to enforce antitrust laws and reform them where necessary. And this can look as simple as a proposal in Congress uh, that passed actually unanimously from the Senate that basically says, hey, if we want to uh, bring like the Texas attorney general wants to bring a lawsuit against one of these big tech platforms, they can do it in a jurisdiction throughout America. And they don't have to go to New York or Northern California where the decision is going to be more favorable to a tech company. So that's one thing. And it's important to remember that a lot of these censorship issues, as others have said, not just me, are downstream from their consolidation of power. So that's why antitrust could be a powerful tool if we're very careful in how we use it, of course. And then look at the big tech's business models. Uh, Senator Mike Lee has a great proposal where they target these the advertising, the ad tech of these companies. So sort of strike at the heart of what allows these companies to target and exploit American citizens. Uh, that thing I mentioned in the beginning, it should be frankly not allowed for the government to use these tech companies as actors to chill speech, period. Ban on that. And then look at the leadership. If you hold these executives liable for real fraud, legitimate breach of contract, I think that's going to go a long way in you know getting up to uh, the CEO's ear, say, oh, I could be held responsible for this misapplication of our, of our uh, terms of service and whatnot, okay, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm under the gun here and we're going to put a stop to it. Uh, transparency, data privacy, especially when it comes to the content moderation practices and the impact of their algorithms, this is super easy to, to actually write into law. There should be a public availability component when it comes to how these tech companies visit their harms on the American people. Uh, and the last thing I'll say here is you know, a lot of tech companies have engaged in joint ventures with the CCP, Amazon, Google in particular, and, uh, and, and other tech companies of the big five ilk. So we need to understand that this should absolutely be prohibited. Congress can say no more. Tim Cook, you can't sign a $275 billion deal with the CCP in order to contribute to their technological prowess. You got to pick a flag and it's got to be the American one. So I think those are some fixes that, frankly, the government has a role to play in terms of uh, 
figuring out what's best for the American people, vice just what's best for the bottom line. It's amazing to me that um, all we ever hear is how racist America is. Uh, people, I mean, I lived outside the country for seven years. This is the least racist country on earth. It really, it really is. It doesn't mean there are no racists, but it's just the least. China is one of the most racist societies in the world. I mean, it's open. It's not, there's no, there's no shame in, in the racist stuff they say, but it doesn't seem to stop them at all. Talk a little bit. For a long time, people were concentrating on this uh, uh, regulation 230, is that the one? Yeah, Regulation 230, that gives them yep. the right both to act as a platform, but also as a publisher. Now, it seems to me if that was created, the whole, the big flaw in the libertarian argument, that was created by government. That that doesn't exist for anybody else. I don't understand why government can't take that away. Are they platforms and publishers both? Is there some special problem with saying you're responsible for the content? Uh, or... Or like the phone company, you have to let anybody say whatever they want. Uh, is there some spe special problem with getting rid of that reg? You know, there's a lot of infighting. You know, I spend a lot of time on the Hill these days. Uh, and when it comes to reforming Section 230, that's what has, you know, there's been just a lot of trouble going back and forth on what that looks like. Um, you'll probably remember when the Trump administration offered to fully repeal Section 230, yeah. uh, and that didn't get that much steam. So we at the Heritage Foundation think focused reform of Section 230 would solve a lot of these problems. So don't let these companies uh, basically, if they don't have Section Section 230 um, protections, we think that they're just going to go whole hog, right? Like all conservatives off the platforms right away. But if you have a focused reform of the statute and basically say, hey, you don't have immunity from civil liability from uh, with Section 230 if you discriminate beyond political viewpoints and then clarify what should be protected under Section 230. Like, we don't want porn running rampant on the platform, et cetera. We're conservatives. Um, but at the same time, use that First Amendment standard as the guiding principle. I think that sort of helps a lot of those efforts. But Section 230, it's just, it's not a silver bullet. It's important for libertarians to understand that this is a government-enhanced power, mm. that these tech companies are artifacts of federal regulation, so they can get their minds right when it comes to this. But I think Focus reform on Section 230, it's going to solve some problems, but not the biggest problem of them, frankly, uh, gaining so much power and working with the government to, to visit and infringe upon the God-given rights of Americans. Uh, I think it needs to be addressed in multiple ways. Uh, you, yeah. Some people called uh, our Heritage Report uh, noticing that, hey, you know, these big tech companies are the Death Star, so shoot everything you can at it. Um, and I, I think that's a, a pretty accurate characterization <laughs> of where we should be when it comes to to actually tackling these problems because the effects are not just deleterious when it comes to adults but look at what's happening to children and we can go on and on about how it's affected our society but frankly we know at this point that social media and a lot of these big tech companies are not living up to their original promise you know that was the next thing i actually wanted to ask you about it, it always drives me crazy when the libertarians talk about these as private entities as if they were a mom and pop store these are multinational corporations with more money than like 75 percent of countries. We're talking to Kara Frederick of the Heritage Foundation. Let's talk about children for a minute here. I mean, I, I, I don't think that's the only problem, but it certainly is a terrible problem. And I think this is you writing, uh, companies poison American youth with content that warps their perceptions of reality and even impairs the development of their consciences. Talk about that for a little bit. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, this is huge. And you've had Blake Masters uh, yeah. from Arizona running for Senate there on your uh, program. Board, and I thought he just nailed this. His uh, view, and I, I've talked about this before too, is all you need to know is that these titans of Silicon Valley, they do not allow their children to exist on these devices. They don't give them these devices. Sundar Pichai, he admitted it in the New York Times when his son was 11 years old in 2018. He said, oh, heck no, I'm not giving them a, him a device. Are you kidding me? Uh, Steve Jobs famously didn't give his child uh, an iPad. So, you know, all you need to know is is there and the, the proof is in the pudding. And then comes to actual effects, measurable effects. We know from the Facebook whistleblower docs that were released last fall by the Facebook whistleblower, um, she basically revealed in those documents that Facebook conducted uh, multiple studies and they, they effectively found that uh, Instagram in particular was extremely harmful when it came to suicidal ideation and body image issues for, for young kids, uh, especially young women. Um, and they, they, they realized it and they were going full steam ahead when it can't, comes to building platforms for kids 13 and under. They only put a little bit of a pause on it, but I have no doubt that they're continuing to build that platform. They're deliberately targeting youth. You know, they're hemorrhaging a lot of their users to TikTok, which that's a whole nother can of worms. We can talk all about TikTok, who serves, uh, I really sets fire to these social content agents like gender dissatisfaction and whatnot massive and ccp beholden too so something to think about if your kids are even looking at being on tiktok absolutely not shouldn't happen but the bottom line is these companies have been called to account uh, because of what they do to children and they keep moving forward. You know, over $200 million fines by the FTC in the state of New York for YouTube for taking the data of underage children. They just blow right through it. That cost is a drop in the bucket. Mm. So nothing that we've been able to do so far has has really slowed the idea that growth is everything and this valuable but untapped audience, Facebook's words, of preteen is something to target. Ouch. They, <laughs> that, those were their words. That You know, the TikTok, I was just reading that there were uh, kids killing themselves by uh, strangulation, by self-strangulation, that there is now a lawsuit about that. Um, is there any way that, that that can work? I mean, is there any way to sue these people so that it matters? You know, I think it's really important to create avenues for Americans to do so. So that's why we talk about, you know, private rights of action. Uh, when parents get involved, and frankly, you know, I'm eight months pregnant right now, and I am terrified of what the, the milieu awaiting my child in the digital environment. So parents' blood should be boiling. And uh, if these parents were actually given recourse, like with private rights of action, the ability to sue, if you reform Section 230 because they hide behind these protections very often, I think that's absolutely critical. So uh, frankly, at this point, the, the more you throw at them, the better. Um, I'm not quite sure if that lawsuit itself is going to succeed, but I think it's time people start taking these impacts seriously. And it's not a moral panic. Anyone can recognize that it's changed the world. It's changed how children grow up and what their futures are going to look like. It's changed, frankly, uh, the, the brains of children and gets right into, as I said in that piece, the formation of their consciences. So we need to take this issue much more seriously. It can't be poo-pooed as squishy. It is a moral issue. It, you know, it, it is, it's so new and so different and such a watershed in the history of humankind, like the invention of the printing press, that the idea that 
that there should be new regulations for it is not anti-conservative. There's new regulations for every new thing that happens, and this has actually changed the world. I mean, there were new regulations needed uh, for child labor when factories were invented. Uh, this is something that is, it's so damaging to our children, and it's damaging, I think it's damaging to just American culture. Kara uh, Frederick from the Heritage Foundation, thank you for coming on. I, I hope you'll come back. I'd like to talk to you more about this. Next time, I'd like you to actually bring the tar and feathers. Maybe we can get started uh, directly. Uh, thanks a lot, Kara. I appreciate Done. it. <laughs> of course, anytime. And, and I just would like to add, before I was making a pitch for uh, the new my new novel, Strange Habit of Mind, the new Cameron Winter story. This is the subject of it, is Cameron Winter basi basically facing off with a social media billionaire. Uh, and incredible stuff, incredible story. Thank you, Kara. I appreciate it. Of course. If you're wondering why you can't find a summer love and why your car isn't running, it's probably the same reason. It's because you haven't said rockauto.com. When you say, you got to say it in that voice, but when you say rockauto.com, the women just come, they come out of the woodwork, out of the trees. It's amazing. It's amazing. Why? Because they know you're smart enough to get car parts. Your car's not running, right? You want to get car parts and you want to get them online. You don't want to go down to the store in a car that's not running and pretend that you're there. It's, it just, the whole thing doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You got to go to rockauto.com and shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers at great prices with their easy to use catalog. You can quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brand specifications and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low. Also, best of all, you get to say rockauto.com. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts when you can say rockauto.com and not only get your car running, but get the girl. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Clavin in there. How did you hear about us? Box so they know I sent you. And you got to say it the same way. You got to say Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. You know, in the last week, the left tried to cancel both the 4th of July and our newest Daily Wire Plus team member, Jordan Peterson. And on both fronts, they failed harder than Joe Biden on a unicycle. Because no matter how much Twitter blue checks complain, Independence Day burgers and fireworks aren't going anywhere, and neither is Jordan. His new series, Dragons, Monsters, and Men, is out right now exclusively on Daily Wire Plus. It's being met with rave reviews, and it's Jordan like you've never seen him before. Let's take a look at the trailer. One of the things I tell young men, well, and young women as well, but the young men really need to hear this more, I think. You should be a monster, an absolute monster, and then you should learn how to control it. So a man who's capable of aggression but has it under control is a way more useful man than one who cannot do that. And so you're willing to go get a job, but you're terrified of an interview. It's like, there's a dragon for you. Because you want to fight the dragons that guard the gates of the treasure that you wish to attain. The productivity requires aim, orientation, responsibility, discipline, that willingness to work, that willingness to make sacrifices, which is the hallmark of maturity in the service of a higher goal. It orients you solidly in the world if you do that, and it gives you a dragon to fight. What do you want to grow up? You want to be illiterate? You want to be inarticulate? You're going to have to negotiate. You're going to have to lead. You're going to have to convince. You're going to have to think to say to an 18-year-old, you're okay the way you are. That just deflates them. 
you know, when you go to the gym and you start lifting weights, well, your body's going to transform, but it's not gonna do that if you just sit around. You have to face your being with the necessity of transformation, and then all sorts of new things that you had no idea you were capable of will make themselves manifest. Those are the dragons, you know, the ones that stand in the path that leads to the light. And you have to say to yourself, I will do good nonetheless. Everyone great makes that decision. Make that decision because maybe you're great. While the left and really almost all the mainstream media in Hollywood at this point are adamant on demonizing men for daring to be masculine, Jordan Peterson offers a dissenting and important voice in his four-part series, Jordan Gives Sage Advice for Embracing and Improving Upon One's Nature to Achieve Greatness. Embracing biology to better the human condition. It's a crazy thought, I know, but that's the kind of radical truth we're bringing you here at Daily Wire Plus which you can be a member of by going to dailywireplus.com. And right now you can get 35% off your new membership. Help us build the future you want to see. Become a member at dailywireplus.com and check out Jordan Peterson's new series, Dragons, Monsters, and Men. So I want to come back to a subject I was talking about a few weeks ago and I plan to be talking about more and more, uh, which is the subject of beauty and restoring beauty because I think that our culture is in a, a slump and I think that conservatives are now culturally on the move, which is something I've been hoping to see for at least 20 years. Uh, and I think that we should be able to think about the ways in which we want to change the culture and what it means to have a culture of beauty, because I think that that is part of the problem. Let me read you something. It was written in 2006. Um, when we place our own will, when we place our own will, our own pride, our own comfort above the demands of truth, it is inevitable that everything will fall ultimately into decay. God, to whom worship is due, will no longer be worshipped. Instead, images, appearances, the prevailing point of view will hold humanity in thrall. This universal distortion will spread to all walks of life. What is contrary to nature will become the norm. The individual who lives contrary to truth lives contrary to nature. His ingenuity will no longer be at the service of what is good, but will be used instead to devise original and artful forms of wickedness. The relationship between husband and wife, between parents and children, will be dissolved, and the sources of life will consequently be thwarted. It will no longer be life that has dominion, but death. A civilization of death will be established." Well, that sounds pretty accurate. In fact, it sounds a little bit like me, and that's because uh, Pope Benedict XVI was greatly affected by, no, it's probably the other way around. Uh, that was Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger, one of the great minds of our time, uh, talking about how when you turn away from truth, you, you turn away from good, from health, from nature, uh, from God, and ultimately a civilization of death grows out, out of it, which is what I think we have had for these last 50 years, increasingly over these last 50 years. So coming back to beauty, 
uh, and which is in the arts a form of truth. I'm thinking about Keats, uh, his famous line in, in poet in the Ode on a Grecian Urn, "Beauty is truth, truth beauty," which I talked about last time. The fact that beauty can be abused. There are ways to abuse beauty to tell lies. But what Keats said was, "I am certain of nothing but of the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth." of imagination. What the imagination seizes as beauty must be truth, whether it existed before or not. For I have the same idea of all our passions as of love. They are all in their sublime, creative of essential beauty. In other words, at our best, it's not that all of our passions are good. Keats was no fool. He understood there are evil passions and passions that can be used for evil, but he's saying that they are supposed to be, they are meant to be, they are given us to be guides to beauty. And then when they find beauty, true beauty, they find the truth. Now, I think as I said, as we're looking to win back the culture, we want to win it back in a beautiful way. And there are a lot of difficulties in striving for beauty. And one is that beauty is very hard to define. Beauty is a good per se, like love, and it's a good in and of itself. That's what it means, good in and of itself. So when you try to define it, you actually end up talking about its effects. Like It's just like love. When you define love, you start to say, well, uh, love is when you want to unite with someone else. Love is uh, when, you're good become, when their good becomes your good, or, or love is you know, the happiness that you feel around them. But those are all effects or symptoms of love. That's not what love is. You can't really get at what love is. If you say a table, I looked up the word table. It says an article of furniture consisting of a flat slab-like top supported on one or more legs or other supports, right? That's a definition of a table. It's not, well, a table is something that makes you feel like eating. A table is a place where you eat. It's a, it's a very good, clear definition. You can't do that with love, and you can't do it with beauty because they have no reference point other than themselves and you. So the dictionary says, beauty is the quality present in a thing or person that gives intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind, whether arising from sensory manifestations, a shape, color, sound, a meaningful design or pattern, or something else as a personality in which high spiritual qualities are manifest. It's really just describing what happens to you when you feel beauty, when you experience beauty. It's not saying what beauty is. You can't say what beauty is, and that's what makes it so difficult to say beauty is a quality is really just to say beauty is beauty. So it sounds like Ibram Kendi, except it, it, with a reason. Uh, but beauty is, is not just real. It's essential to human beings. When I say rap music sucks, people are always writing to me, and they'll say, uh, you know, well, here's a rap star who's really talented, or here's a rap star that honors America, here's a rap star uh, who writes rap about Jesus. Uh, that's not the point. That is not my point at all. First of all, I think some rap people who write rap are enormously talented. I think rap itself as music has no beauty. There is no beauty in the music of rap. I don't think anybody can argue there is. I think it's inherently degraded. I think it's a degraded form of music. It's not that people don't have talent. It's that they're pouring that, that talent into something that in, in itself inherently has no beauty to it. Now, beauty went out of style uh, quite openly. Artists started to talk about beauty uh, going out of style after the world wars. And I think the kind of the reason for that was a certain disgust with civilization. The civilization, as I've said many times, as I've had people riot uh, because I said it, um, the civilization of Europe between 1500 and 1914, when World War I started, was the greatest civilization mankind has yet produced. Uh, it was the greatest art, the greatest music, the greatest literature, and all of those things that led to things, uh, political 
achievements like the Constitution and the Declaration that all grew out of that culture. Uh, it was the greatest culture that mankind ever has produced, and it died with the world wars. And the death that it died, this death of utter bloodshed, utter destruction, and finally, in the form of Hitler, an evil that had been lurking uh, within the culture all that time, made people feel that the culture itself was false and any beauty that it had produced was to be turned away from. Uh, and especially with Hitler, uh, you know, we talked about this last time, I was talking about beauty, that, um, that Hitler, Hitler's idea that he wanted to go back to old forms, that he didn't want, mod he hated modern art, kind of reinforced the idea that if you didn't like uh, abstraction, if you didn't like the ugliness of modern art, something was wrong with you, you were Hitlerian. Uh, and and as I said, it's, it's not that Hitler was right. The art that his people produced was overbearing uh, and absurd, but he had, you know, he was, he was hitting on something that had truth to it. Uh, so the world wars are a trauma and they were horrific and they reveal the horrible brokenness of humanity, but it was out of that horrible brokenness that Europe's brilliant society was born. And so it's not the society uh, it's not the beauty that the society produced. It's not the civilization itself. It's the brokenness of humankind that always, always is going to taint every civilization and every form of beauty. So now there's two things. So as we start to think what uh, beauty is, there's two things we have to lay aside. And the most important of these is the idea that beauty is in the eye of, of the beholder, understood as meaning that beauty is relative. Everybody who knows anything believes this to be true, and it is not true. Beauty is not relative. It is subjective. Those are two different things. This is like uh, that science has disproved God. This is one of those things that everybody knows. It's just true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is relative. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things everybody knows that just isn't so. Uh, but before we get to why it isn't so, we have to talk about one other thing that we lay aside, which is the beauty of human beings, okay? The human form what, what William Blake, the poet, called the human form divine, um, is, is a source of beauty and can, uh, in art. It's a source of beauty in art. It can be the baseline of beauty in art. But the human form as it is real, that is my human form, your human form, is not a good way to talk about beauty because there's simply too much involved. There's sexuality, but there's also the fact that you're made in God's image. So there's something beautiful about you, even if you don't happen to be like, you know, you don't happen to be as beautiful as I am, but you happen to be less beautiful than I am, which is, I know, it's everyone, but still, you can't judge that because there's something beautiful in you. So when you, I've mentioned this before, when you fall in love with somebody, even if that person wasn't beautiful before, they become better looking to you as you fall in love with them because you're seeing what's beautiful about them. It's simply too complex. That is not the way art works. Art is not a person. Uh, not every work of art has something beautiful in it as every person does. Uh, so, so art is different. The art, beauty that's in art, which is the beauty that we're talking about, is, uh, is different. And it is not. It is subjective, but it's not relative. Now, what do I mean by subjective, but not relative? Uh, I go to my favorite metaphor, uh, one of my favorite metaphors, which is the rainbow, right? The rainbow is an actual phenomenon in nature. It's the light passing through a prism, but it doesn't exist until you see it. The rainbow is subjective. The existence of the rainbow exists in your mind. It's a subjective human experience, but it's a subjective human experience of an actual 
Natu- objective natural phenomenon, right? If you look at a rainbow and you see a truck, you are not seeing the rainbow properly. The rainbow is an actual thing that only exists when you see it. It is subjective. And beauty in art is that way too. So in a sense, it's true that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The rainbow is in the eye of the beholder. If you ever wondered why they say that Abraham's faith was, Paul said Abraham's faith was counted toward him as righteousness because faith is a way of seeing God. And so God is inside you, but you're seeing something that is really there and beauty is the same thing. So the question is, if when I see a rainbow, I am seeing light pass through a prism, what am I seeing when I see beauty and how can we find beauty in art? So let's go back to what I was talking about last time, which is Michelangelo's Pieta, the beautiful statue of the Virgin Mary holding her dead son in her arms. And I was talking about the fact that beauty is not nice necessarily. It can be, but it's not necessarily nice. It's not good. The brutal judicial murder of an innocent man by crucifixion is in no way pretty. It's not a pretty thing. The grief of a mother is not pretty. Holding her son there, that's not a pretty thing. It's not a good thing. It's not even an uplifting thing. It's not an uplifting thing. It's a depressing thing. And yet it is incredibly beautiful when it is carved by Michelangelo. I think it's one of the, simply one of the most beautiful objects in the world, okay? And it's, a tra- and it's tragic. You know, people are always, conservatives are always saying art should be uplifting. Nonsense, nonsense. It's just tragic, okay? But as the title implies, Pieta, that's what it's called, the Pieta means pity. It's the fact that it is human and it calls forth an emotion in us that is the emotion of, the, that is the natural emotion of a person looking at that scene. And it connects us with the Virgin Mary and with the, what Michelangelo feels about the Virgin Mary. So it's a link between something in our heart and something in another heart, right? With something that's physical presence, but because it is the Virgin Mary and because it's Jesus, it's also a link with something beyond that, with a whole theology, a whole way of looking at the world, an entire concept of nature that is full of moral uh, understanding and full of holiness and all those things, okay? The purpose of art is to communicate feeling from one person to another. You can't do that any other way. You can't, do, you can't say, I feel happy and make you feel happy, but you can tell the story of a Christmas carol and communicate joy, the joy of Christmas to somebody else. You can't say, I feel sad and make somebody else feel sad, but you can say, show the pieta and that will communicate sorrow. Even, I, I've always, I always make the point that even an athlete, when he's asked what it's like to win the big game will result to metaphor, he'll resort to art. He'll say it was like waking up on Christmas morning, something like that, because there's just no way to say, you know, otherwise he'll just say something inarticulate, like it's amazing. So people are always saying, well, rap music, you know, it does communicate something human. It communicates uh, the anger of the streets. It communicates, you know, the rage of the poor, whatever they say it communicates. But just communicating human being, human feelings is not enough to make art beautiful. It may make it art. It's certainly, rap music certainly is an art. I just think it's not a good art uh, and it's not a beautiful art. In order to make it beautiful, you have to connect, the, the, you have to communicate human feeling in the full context of the cosmos. Art that is beautiful connects human feeling to the full context of the moral co- cosmos. And that's what Pope Benedict was referring to when he refer, he's referring to Paul when he's saying that people when they lose God lose truth. Paul was saying that God is in. He said 
Everything that may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. God is written in nature. Beauty is not necessarily a question of obeying religion. It's not necessarily a question of being a Christian. It's not even necessarily a question of saying, um, you know, believe this, this, and this, believe the Ten Commandments. I believe that the because I'm a Christian, I believe that, that ultimately that vision will be Christian, but it's a vision of seeing nature truly in its entirety. That's where Christianity comes from. God, the, the heavens reveal the glory of God. You can't see invisible truth. You can only see the visible truth. I can't say grief and make you see grief. I have to show you the pieta. When I show you the pieta, you see the grief. You see the glory of mother's love. You see the, the sacrifice of God. You see not only the human experience, you see the human experience in the total context. Now, Christians recognize this as the, our system of communicating with God. We see Jesus. He connects us to the Father through the Holy Spirit that is then in us. And that is the model for beauty in art. It was there before Jesus. It's going to be there now. It's going to still be there now. You can put it in any other way you want. You don't have to name Jesus. But all I'm saying is that art has to connect you, your feelings, with another person's feelings by way of bringing you through that object, through that art, to a totality, a totality, the heavens, which, which will ultimately declare the glory of God. So if you look out the window and you see a dark cloud moving towards you and the dark cloud is filled with kind of lizard-like characters waiting to devour you, that is the Clavenless Fortnite uh, moving in uh, as my vacation begins. You can stave it off a little bit by pre-ordering uh, A Strange Habit of Mine, the new Cameron Winter book, the sequel to uh, When Christmas Comes. If you order both When Christmas Comes and A Strange Habit of Mine, uh, you might even survive. That's possible. Who knows? But you will not survive if you still have any problems left. So we're going to solve all your problems with the mailbag. I'm going to use my new manicure as almost like a personal <laughs> act of reclamation for me and my story. <laughs> That's uh, I'm doing that too. I'm I'm leaving right here before I travel away on my vacation. I'm going to get my manicure. Uh, I may even have my head polished. Who knows? Uh, okay, from Shelby, how long do you think a couple should be together before they get married? Wow. All right. Well, that's actually a good question. Um, and uh, obviously, I I can't give you you know like four months and two days. I can't give you an exact uh, date, but I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Um, I think women wait too long. I think women allow men to wait too long. I think that, um, you know, we can lie about this, we can soft soap it, but I think that women are, uh, when they're younger, are going, it's easier for them to attract men, it's easier for them to have babies. I think the purpose of life is having babies. I don't think there's any higher purpose uh, to life uh, except life. And, um, and I think, you know, obviously living a beautiful life and a life that brings you closer to God so that you can have a new life when this life is over. But still, still, those babies ha have to be some, the world must be peopled, as Shakespeare said. The world must be peopled. So I think you have to get in line and do it. And I think moving in with a guy, uh, living with a guy, listen, I did everything wrong. My wife and I did everything wrong and it worked out. And so everything can work out for you. But when I see women living with guys, young women especially, I think to myself, you know, if you were a little bit sharper, you would start to say, hey, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Uh, I don't think you should nag people, but I think that somewhere, somewhere in the line, you know, after, after you've been with somebody for about six months, what else are you going to find out? I love these people who have two children and say, we're thinking of getting married. And you think like, well, what, what, 
that's the new new thing that you found out after having these two children. Uh, so I don't know. It, it seems to me like after six months, you should know just about everything, whether you want to get married or not. Uh, that's that's a general guess. And like I said, people do everything wrong and get it right. I did. My, I, my wife and I did. But that's because, you see, you, if you really want to have a happy marriage, you have to marry my wife, which you can't do because I do have skills and I will find you. Um, all right. But that's my that's my general feeling um, from anonymous. How do you get over someone? I have found I get this question a lot. Actually, I found myself in love with a woman. Uh, I'm a dude. Uh, she is the most interesting woman I've ever met. She's an amputee and an athlete. She inspires me to do better in my life and be less of a schlub. I've asked her out twice to no avail, uh, but we've hung out a lot and. To me, it felt like love. Fast forward, and the woman in question is dating someone else. The man is a friend of mine uh, and a good guy, but I can't help but feel indignant about the whole situation. Any, I need to find a way to move on. Any advice would be helpful. I'd love to know what traumas I suffered that makes me so attracted to women who only want to be friends. Well, yeah, that's you know, you're asking, you're answering your own question with yet another question. That is the question. What happened to you? Uh, because you said you asked her out to no avail, and then. It felt like love, and then she went off with another guy. But if she had wanted to go out with you, it wouldn't have been to no avail. It would have been to avail. When you asked her out, she would have gone with you. Uh, so clearly, she was not available to you. You say this has happened to you before, uh, and you say what happened that makes you so attracted to women who only want to be friends. Well, that, you know, there's probably somebody in your life uh, as a child who was unavailable to you, who you loved, uh, and now you're sort of attaching that to somebody else. That's the way these things usually work. Uh, it might be good to find out who. It might be good to find out what relationship you are modeling these relationships on, because that's usually what we do. Uh, I have had this happen in my life and solved it without, you know, I've solved many things with therapy. I'm a believer if you have a good therapist uh, in therapy, I believe in it quite strongly because I think other people um, you, you know, the eye can't see itself. Another Shakespeare line, the eye can't see itself, but a, another person helps you to see yourself. Uh, but so therapy is a good thing. But I have also just noticed that sometimes that I've had a series of relationships, not necessarily with women, but a series of relationships that modeled a relationship in my past that wasn't good for me. And I've simply stopped. I learned how to recognize it fast. So I think that you should do that. I think you should, whether through therapy or on your own, start to think about what relationships you're modeling this on uh, and stop doing it. Because when you do it once, it, it may just be an accident. When you do it two times or three times, as you seem to have done, uh, it's you. It's coming out of you, and you got to get rid of it. Um, and, and you can. You no reason you can't change. From Danielle, uh, thank you for all that you do. I'm a 34-year-old wife and mom of two girls. Uh, I hope you might have some advice for me. I'm an extremely agreeable person. For years, I've been proud of myself for this. I hate rocking the boat or making a situation uncomfortable. Uh, and I still believe that peacekeeping is a gift and nobody should be searching for a problem. I'm finally realizing that I need to challenge myself a little. My husband is the opposite of me and he's taught me over the years that sometimes I need to stand up for myself. However, it's ingrained in me to shy away from conflict at all costs, even if that means I'm sometimes walked over or taken advantage of. I want to be able to speak the truth kindly when necessary. Do you have any advice for a non-conference person uh, seeking to stand up a little more. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right, of course. I, l listen, I, I think you should be proud of yourself for uh, being uh, an amiable person. Uh, I try to, I pride myself on being an even-tempered person, uh, but that doesn't mean I don't stand up for myself when that is necessary. And I think, you know, one way that you can do this, uh, you know, you might try 
little things. You know, start with little things so that you can practice how you say to someone, uh, listen, you know, I, you, you know, I didn't like that movie or no, I, I would rather not see that movie and, and here's why. I understand why you want to see that movie, but maybe you could go on your own and I want to see this movie. You know, something small uh, that, that you can find out how you can say, to peop- say things to people so that their feelings aren't hurt, but they understand that they have to be responsible to you. It's very important because if you do it right, then you learn the people who don't care, who don't care about you. Uh, and then you can avoid them or at least learn, then, then you might have to learn to stand up in a confrontational way. You know, we don't, not everything has to be a confrontation when you disagree with somebody. Uh, disagreeing is allowed. You know, this is the thing that's so graceless about our society right now is we think that anybody who disagrees is the enemy. Uh, I, I frequently get emails from uh, conservatives who say, the Daily Wire has gone down the drain. And you think, you say, well, why? And it's like one thing, that one comment that somebody made or one attitude that somebody has that they don't agree with. I mean, there are a lot of hosts here. We all have different opinions. But if one of them says something wrong, they're done. You know, I'm done. I'm finished with the Daily Wire. Uh, you know, that's not the way it has to be at all. Uh, people disagree with things. They legitimately see things differently. Things that are good for you may not be good for me. Obviously, that there is a moral order. There is objective moral truth. But within that uh, objective moral truth, there's wiggle room. And so when somebody says, you know, I'd like to go see the new, um, you know, Jason Statham movie, and you're not into Jason Statham kicking the living daylights out of people, but you like kind of uh, more quiet, sweet movies, there's nothing wrong with saying that's not my kind of movie and doing it in the nicest possible way. So start with something small uh, and then you can move on to the fact that uh, then you can kick somebody out of your house and say, I never want to see you again. Um, All right. From Jenny, my husband is a wonderful man. We had just renewed our vows after 33 years of marriage. Uh, Congratulations. And uh, I'd finally begun to understand what it means to trust him enough to submit to him because though faulty, he has my best interest in mind. He's the strong protective one. Now he has all kinds of complications from an aortic dissection one year after we renewed our vows. How do I make sure he's, new- he's still the man in my life when I have to do the driving, sort his meds, take his blood pressure daily and do any heavy lifting in the house and get a better paying job? I love him so much and I'm so worried about him not knowing how much of a man I see him as still. Well, listen, you can be, you know, whatever you're, pinnacle of manhood is, Navy SEAL, whatever it is. Uh, nobody beats time. Nobody beats time and disease. Time, you know, no, even if you're the guy from uh, the terminal list, uh, when time comes for you, you're done. And and so he's sick and it's, it's weakened him and any, anyone can be weakened. Uh, what a man is, is a man who, who faces the necessary and does the necessary thing when he has to with all the courage he can muster. And so he is still the man, even though you have to do those things. And you can still turn to him for guidance. You can still turn to him for advice. You can still turn to him to set the tone of your family and the, and the path of, of your marriage and trust him in all those things uh, without his having this, the physical wherewithal to do the things that we sometimes rudely uh, and crudely associate with, with manhood. Uh, like I said, nobody, you know, Death, death and time are going to get us, each and every one of us, no matter how tough we are. Uh, anybody can be sucker punched. Anybody can lose a fight to a bigger guy. All of those things are true. You make him the man in your life by making him the man in your life, the guide, uh, the light, and the, uh, and the forefront of your family. And that's how you do that. And I'm glad that you want to do it because I think there's a great deal of joy uh, and natural uh, rightness in, in that. And with that, I'm going on vacation. Uh, two weeks without me, your <laughs> chances of your surviving are laughably small. But please go on and pre-order A Strange Habit of Mine, the new Cameron Winter uh, mystery, and get When Christmas Comes while you're at it if you haven't read that. And if you survive, if you crawl over the broken glass, the flames, the screaming, the dead, if you make it, we'll, we'll be back in two weeks with The Andrew Clavin Show. I'm Andrew Clavin.
Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thank you for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Lisa Bacon, executive producer Jeremy Boring, our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Production manager, Pavel Wadowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. Our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. And our production assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2022. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is assassinated. Liberal parents in blue areas panic as the trans social contagion takes over classrooms. And Joe Biden hands a Medal of Freedom to the greatest living American, Megan Rapino. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Mm-hmm.